FM. Right now I'm joined by Professor Richard Jackson, Director of the National Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies here at Otago University. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. How are we today, sir? Not too bad. Not too bad. Yep. Day number two yep. of the three-day conference. That's why you're in here, Rethinking Pacifism for Revolution, Security and Politics. How was day one? Uh, it was excellent. Yeah, yep. we started off with um, a really great talk by um, Stellan Vintagen, who's um, sort of an activist scholar. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been working all around the world. Um, he, he told us he's been arrested on more than 30 occasions. <laughs> uh, he spent time in prison, actually, for um, breaking into a U.S. base and trying to smash a, a nuclear missile with the plowshares movement. Wow. Um, and then he's been, he, he kicked off the conference talking about um, the Zapatistas, um, and how, in many ways, they've sort of um, evolved and moved along in their revolution because they've realized that um, there's kind of limits to using violence as a way of setting up a new structure. And, and really, it's about trying to figure out how to become new people mm-hmm. new, with new kind of um, consciousness yeah. and new kinds of power relations and new kinds of... Uh, Structures and processes, and it's really kind of revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really interested in that one because um, you can look around the globe, and and after um, really powerful movements that may have involved violence. I mean, even now you just look at what's happening in Zimbabwe. Um, you can look at Chile. Uh, you can look uh, at many places around the world, and a lot of the time, violent resistance, by the by the looks of it, 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 it breeds a. Um, a ruling class within the resistance movement, uh, they come into power and they kind of, um, you know, it, it almost go, it grows into a dictatorship of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, interestingly, there's a whole bunch of empirical research where they've looked at literally hundreds of cases of this and they found that um, in cases of violent revolution, there's like a, a 95% chance um, after the revolution that you'll get some kind of new kind of dictatorship mm. but after non-violent revolutions there's a, like a 95% chance that you'll get um, more democratic human rights concerning kind of regimes mm-hmm. but the key point for me and it's one that you know I'm going to make in my own uh, lecture and one that's sort of coming out of some of the conversations we're having in the conference is that you have to transform not just you know, the ends of the revolution, what you're aiming at, but also the means by which you get there. You have to be the change you want to see. And that's why violence is always such a limiting kind of approach, because it actually just reinforces the idea of domination, Mm -hmm. uh, force, coercion, making people do what you want them to do, as the kind of dominant mode of how to run a country. Mm -hmm. So if you want to have a country that's based on mutual respect and mutual freedom uh, and diversity and respect for others, you can't use a method to get there that's contradictory to that. So that's why you've got to use revolutionary nonviolence, which kind of subverts the dominant way of doing things and the dominant perception of how you get power, but what you actually do that way is you bring into existence the very kind of politics that you want to create. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is what makes it so revolutionary, and this is what makes it so powerful. Um, what about the case of Aung San Suu Kyi, um, currently um, displacing a lot of um, a well, the Muslims within that country? Um, everybody held her up. 
uh, and was really, you know, as, as a revolutionary um, pacifist, uh, and it looked like she was going to come in and transform her nation. What what do you think's happening there? What's going wrong? I'm just going to ask this question. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm really interested in this. I'm one. no expert, but uh, my, I have a feeling that um, uh, the the reality is that she's not as free as um, everyone thinks. She's it's still a pretty much a military dictatorship, mm-hmm. but she's been given well the military dictatorship to to sort of um, give their regime respectability. Have given her a certain amount of freedom and power. Yeah. But in actual fact, I think behind the scenes, they're what we would call the deep state. They um, they still actually control things. And I wonder if she's very, very restricted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's possible that um, because of the many, many years of suffering that she experienced, uh, she doesn't want to do anything that might lead to her re-arrest and yep. re-imprisonment. Um, so maybe she's afraid to, to speak out on this issue. Because I mean, she's, she's just a human, right? Yeah. Because she's been told, uh, if you say anything on this, I mean, I'm just speculating. Yeah, I don't yeah. know enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, this is a perfect example of if you don't go all the way, if you don't transform, um, you know, things like the military and its involvement in politics, then you're always uh, at risk that they come back in and start influencing again. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really takes a radical transformation to create a sort of much more genuine. <clears throat> revolutionary peace if you like and, you know the world, the, the world uh, as we know it at the moment it seems like we're always on high alert you know um you got terrorism uh fears over north korea uh south china sea conflict um you've got uh, all the sexual misconduct that's coming out as well I and mean, we're not just looking at um things like terrorism and war um your climate change uh trade packs um, you know, and these bring real stress uh, to every corner of the globe. Is pacifism really an option right now? Um, you know, because it seems like no one at the top is really listening to the people. If, uh, I, I worry that, well, I don't worry, but it just seems like, you know, is, will pacifism work in this day and age? I think now is the perfect moment for it, actually. Mm-hmm. Because I think that uh, everyone has begun to realise that the current system is is not working. They've come to realize, first of all, that um, militarism doesn't work, that uh, war doesn't work. You know, we had 15 years of fighting al-Qaeda in Iraq, mm-hmm. and what did what did we produce? We produced ISIS in an even worse situation. Yeah. Uh, we've poured $5 trillion into the war on terror, and it hasn't reduced terrorism. It's actually increased the amount of terrorism that we face. I mean, this shows us the limits of using force and power and coercion in the traditional way. Yeah. Not only that, but uh, we've seen um, everyone knows the the limits of the current political structures to deal with inequality mm-hmm. uh, and the massive gap between the rich and the poor and all the money that gets hidden away in in, in um, tax havens. And we've seen the failure of corporations and governments um, to deal with the climate crisis. So. Now, the thing about pacifism is it says it's not up to the politicians to fix everything. It's up to all of us. Yeah. And it calls for both personal and structural transformation. Mm-hmm. And it says we all as people have the power within us um, to collectively work together as Gandhi did, as Martin Luther King did, as many as hundreds of other 
um, non-violent mass movements have done to actually bring into existence the kind of world we want to see. Yeah. And in fact, this is so. This is the difference between probably some kind of liberal forms of non-violence, which are all about uh, enacting new policies, trying to get governments to make concessions, and so on, and radical revolutionary non-violence, which says, in actual fact, we don't need the state. We could perhaps, as the Zapatistas have done, train our own doctors, mm -hmm. train our own engineers and start our own universities, run a, have our own health clinics, develop our own economy where, you know, we share the wealth, um, and develop our own forms of radical democracy, where we have a pact, for example, that uh, half of all the politicians have to be women. Mm -hmm. um, and that, or that in any major post there has to be a man and a woman, uh, and that the, the politicians are the ones that serve us, we don't serve them, uh, with a new kind of um, sort of political ethos. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to me, now is the moment, yeah. because we've realized that things are really bad, and we've realized that the old theories, Marxist revolution or using elections and liberal democracy, not, those things haven't worked yeah. in a way they, because they just continue to reaffirm and reify the um, traditional modes of power and what we need is a new kind of power mm -hmm. and a new kind of vision of, of, um, of what society can be, one that builds from the bottom up and, and from uh, people who are committed to equality diversity, recognition and so on. Are we as a people... Um all over the world, but especially even in New Zealand, are we too selfish? You know, um, a lot of us have grown up in a neoliberal society, uh, and with that comes protectionism, especially over wealth. Uh, and we fear, um, you know, if we look at something like climate change, we fear that that's going to impact us on a personal level in terms of our money. Absolutely. Um, you know, the biggest success of capitalism has been to turn us all into. Um, selfish consuming individuals mm. uh, and to kind of undermine any sense of collective um, uh, society and, and collective groups. I mean, people don't know their neighbours anymore. Yeah, and empathy with others. Um, now, again, I say that this is the, the perfect moment for rethinking all this and perhaps challenging it because what we've seen in the last few years is actually, um, particularly young people, have been left out of the um, the wealth and the opportunities and the number of jobs are shrinking uh, the youth unemployment is much much higher today than it mm -hmm. was uh, in the past and I think young people in particular are realizing this system isn't working for me uh, even though it's cultivated in me this desire to be wealthy and and uh, own a lot of stuff actually there aren't the jobs there aren't the opportunities and so on but also they are looking around and saying we can see the environmental crisis, we can see you know, the, how out of touch politicians are, we can see the, the pointless wars and all the money that's spent on it and everything, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think they're becoming more radical. And in the United States, for example, young people overwhelmingly voted for Bernie Saunders. In Britain, they vo voted for Cor uh, yep. Jeremy Corbyn. Mm -hmm. uh, they're at the forefront of, of a lot of the um, protests and direct action movements that we're seeing all over the world, including in New Zealand. And I think that there's a growing awareness, and, th and that's the generation yeah. uh, of young people who I think in the next 10 to 15 years 
are going to lead these mass movements and and help hopefully to bring about a, a genuine revolutionary change. Mm. Well, this is just the beginning of that rise, isn't it? I think so. And to me, I think Occupy, for all the people who criticise it, was actually so important because mm. what it did, what it, it raised consciousness, created conversations, and allowed people to start thinking about uh, how another world might be built. We did, we wouldn't have the blueprint. It would be about um, experimenting with different kinds of democracy and different kinds of participation. But that kind of politicized, I think, a whole generation. Mm-hmm. And to me, Occupy was the start, not the end or the middle. Yeah. It was the very, very beginning of a process that we're now um, perhaps even just only beginning to, to build up a bit of momentum. And it may take another 20 years, may take 30 years, but I think this generation that was inspired by and... and uh, and their consciousness was opened by Occupy, that are going to uh, start moving. Mm. They said that in New Zealand, we we resisted TPPA, and, and Labour came out and said, yes, we're all against it, but they just fooled us all. Um, <laughs> just quickly, um, because I know you've got to go. Um, right, so there's two more days left of the conference. Who, who Who's coming up um, that's having a public um, lecture um, that could be quite interesting for some people to check out? Okay, well, we've got um, Dwayne Cady, who's starting in a few minutes. Um, he's talking about warism, uh, eradicating warism. Mm-hmm. So he, he contrasts pacifism with warism and, and suggests that we have um, built up a society that actually, you know, uh, valorizes and encourages and establishes warism as our, our dominant kind of ideology. So mm-hmm. he's talking about how we need to break that down. Yep. Um, we have a whole number of uh, 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 papers that people are giving in different um, uh, sessions. Molly Wallace um, uh, is a brilliant young uh, up-and-coming scholar on, on pacifism who's done a lot of work on how unarmed peacekeepers can protect people from violence even in the midst of civil wars. It's incredible research. Wow. But um, her talk is... is a is about the kind of pacifism that we need, which is not uh, deeply moralistic. It's not, um, you know, prescriptive. It's it's messy. It's uh, experimental. But it is all about recognizing other people as human beings yeah. and not treating them as uh, things, which is what we do when we um, when we use violence. You know, we treat them as collateral damage. Yeah. We treat them as just a set of statistics that we need to get through on the way to yeah. some other kind of Necessary thing. Necessary loss. Yeah. Um, so she's going to be great. And then um, uh, later this afternoon, we're, we're going to have a, a sort of round table discussion on whether it's possible to try and create a pacifist state. Um, and I think there'll be some really interesting ideas there because one of the things that we haven't really explored in recent years is the idea of what's called social defense or civilian based defense, how you can actually construct a system to defend your country without any military. Uh, and there's been a lot of work on that mm-hmm. and a mm-hmm. lot of brilliant ideas which when you read them you think yeah that could really work but it doesn't get a lot of airplay brilliant fascinating so um, where can people go to find out the entire list I guess you can just go to uh, your university page yeah so if you go to the home page of the National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies there's um, a link right on the front page to the Rethinking Pacifism Conference and, and you can see the um, program there you can see the bios of the speakers mm-hmm. and in fact uh, you can download many many of the papers themselves and read them uh, so if you can't make the conference you can 
you can read the papers anyway. And we're also recording a lot of the co uh, papers and talks, yep. and we're going to put them on a YouTube channel uh, following the conference. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming in this morning. It's yeah, been a pleasure, pleasure having you here. And um, no doubt we'll have you on uh, more and more. So congratulations on uh, the role this year. It's this, this year you began. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm no. very proud to lead this centre. It's oh, great. It's, yeah, it is. It is. It's uh, uh, one of the greatest assets that this university has, if not the greatest. Uh, all right.